recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 28, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We will not quite get through Galatians chapter 5 this evening. In these presentations of the epistles of Paul, it has been my endeavor to be as thorough as I can, because Paul of Tarsus is attacked from all sides. He is completely taken out of context by Judeo-Christians. His portions of scripture are the most poorly translated portions of the New Testament. And the Judeo-Christians thoroughly misrepresent just about everything he said. And for that reason, on the other side of the coin, he is attacked by a large sector of so-called identity Christians because those fools who attack Paul of Tarsus from a Christian nationalist viewpoint actually believe the poor interpretations and the bad translations of the Judeo-Christians in spite of what Paul had actually said. They just take it for granted that the denominational sects are telling the truth. In truth, Paul was teaching Christian identity in complete harmony with our modern understanding. And he also fully agreed with the gospel, with the prophets, and the epistles of the other apostles wherever they discuss similar topics. Paul's own epistles were also remarkably consistent, not only with the gospels and the prophets, but with one another. But to fully demonstrate this fact, I may have to sometimes repeat myself. So because the topic is the same here in Galatians chapter 5, as it was in Galatians chapter 2, we will have some necessary overlap with things that we said in that presentation several weeks ago, just as we had some necessary overlap presenting Galatians chapter chapters 3 and 4, and Paul's exhibition of covenant theology these past several weeks. I pray that I do not bore you to sleep. We must make it fully evident that there is no discrepancy with Paul of Tarsus in relation to a proper understanding of the rest of Scripture. That understanding, however, can only come from a knowledge of Christian identity, which is the truth of the word of God in the prophets and in the promises to Abraham. So now we will present our sixth portion of our presentation of Paul's epistles, of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which is subtitled, Liberty in Christ. For most of the first four chapters of this epistle to the Galatians, Paul has been explaining that the works of the law, which were the required rituals and ceremonial ordinances, 
are done away with in Christ. At the same time, Paul has explained the circumstances of the fulfillment in Christ of the Abrahamic covenant and the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their seed after them. After the same manner which Yahweh God had made those promises in the Old Testament. Because the children of Israel shall not any longer be judged by the law, but instead have mercy in Christ, and because they are no longer bound to the rituals and ceremonies of the law, they have liberty in Christ, which Paul is about to explain here in Galatians chapter 5. But liberty in Christ is not liberty from morality or liberty from the commandments of Yahweh God. Rather, it is the freedom to love and have mercy for one another and to receive of the same to a much greater extent than the letter of the Hebrew law allowed, the letter of the law at Mount Sinai. As Paul shall also explain here in this chapter of Galatians, it should be clear from Scripture, as well as from experience, unless a man is deceiving himself, that a man cannot be found righteous by the law, because all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is why those promises to Abraham are so important to the new covenant, because the new covenant, as Paul has explained here, is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, which must be kept by Yahweh God in spite of the dissolution of the old covenant due to Israel's failure to keep the law of God. In this manner, Paul is attempting to put the covenants in perspective. But before Christians can do the same, it must be understood that both covenants, the old and the new, were made with the same genetic people according to the word of God in the promises which he had made to Abraham. Neither covenant circumvents nor supersedes, and as Paul said, in Galatians 3.15, the new covenant does not set aside the promises to Abraham, which were passed down through Isaac and Jacob and to the seed of their loins after them. So the new covenant is not at all predicated on the old covenant. Rather, the new covenant is predicated upon the Abrahamic covenant the promises to Abraham. Wherever it says forever in the Old Covenant, that forever, if you read Leviticus chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, that forever depends upon whether the children of Israel would keep the law. But wherever it says forever in the original promises to Abraham, that forever only depends upon Yahweh. Man fails. Israel could not keep the old covenant, but Yahweh God cannot fail. 
he will keep his promises to Abraham. If Israel if Israel were held to the old covenant law which they broke, then all of Israel should be put to death. And the promises to Abraham would fail. But the promises to Abraham could not fail. So Yahweh had promised that he would make a new covenant with the same children of Israel. And the terms of that covenant are expressed explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 31. Although facets of it are also mentioned elsewhere in the writings of the other prophets. So Paul had said in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that the blessing of Abraham would come to the nations at the hand of Christ Joshua, that we should receive the promise of the Spirit through the faith. And it is clear that Paul meant to refer only to the nations of Israel, where, for instance, he says... A little further on in that same chapter, in verse 23, but before the faith was to come, we have been guarded under law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. So the law has been our tutor for Christ, in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. But that faith must be according to the faith of Abraham who believed that all of the promises of God would come to his own offspring and to nobody else, from the nations and kings which had been promised to come from his own loins. So Paul concludes at the end of Galatians chapter 4, and we, brethren, down through Isaac, are children of promise. And the word kata means down from or down through or perhaps according to or after the manner of. Being children of the promise in that manner in which Isaac was, Yahweh God did not allow any substitutes for seed from Abraham's loins through Sarah and even rejected seed from Abraham's loins through Hagar, the bondwoman. Neither could Abraham himself substitute for that seed, as he attempted to do so by making Eliezer his heir. And Yahweh rejected the notion and said, He that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Therefore, children of the promise must be from Abraham's loins in the manner of Isaac, as the children of Israel certainly were. The Galatians, a tribe of the same people who were anciently referred to as Cimmerians, Sake, and Scythians, were indeed a portion of the children of Israel taken captive into Assyria nearly 800 years 
before Paul had visited them in order to bring to them the gospel of reconciliation in Christ. Here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul will continue to illustrate that Christian Israel is not to be judged by the law, but that instead they have liberty in Christ, a liberty which he first mentioned in this epistle in chapter 2. But Paul was not an antinomian, meaning against the law. Paul did not discard the law as if a man could possibly discard of the laws of God. It must not be forgotten that long before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, Abraham was blessed by Yahweh because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, as we are informed in Genesis 26, verse 5. The modern antinomian position has evolved out of a complete failure to distinguish the commandments of God from what Paul had called the works of the law, which we have shown to be a reference to the sacrifices and rituals and ceremonial ordinances in the law, as we discussed presenting Galatians chapter 2 here, approximately one month ago. Paul shall explain the ongoing need for Christians to keep the commandments of the law here. Several years after writing this epistle to the Galatians, while writing his epistle to the Romans, perhaps five years later, Paul would make an even lengthier explanation of this same thing, where he asked in chapter 3 of that epistle, do we then nullify the law by faith? And then he gives an answer himself to the rhetorical question by responding, certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. Paul had also repeated the commandments in Romans chapter 13, where, sounding very much like the words of Christ in the gospel, he said, You owe to no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust, and any other commandment, meaning whatever commandments remain, is summarized in this saying, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. Paul defines love. by fulfilling the law. Neglecting the commandments of God, which are the foundation for basic morality necessary to form a godly society, is to despise one's brethren. Christians should volunteer to keep those commandments out of love, not out of compulsion. As Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And as Yahweh said that Abraham kept my charge, 
my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, without any threat of punishment if he had chosen to do otherwise. Paul will ask the Romans in chapter 6 of that same epistle, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as bondmen to obey, bondmen you are to whom you obey, truly either of sin for death or of obedience for righteousness. He had also explained this in yet a different manner in his epistles to the Corinthians, as he advises his readers in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Peter spoke likewise, where in 2 Peter 2.19, he said of the enemies of God, which corrupted Christian assemblies, that while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. The only true liberty for Christians is liberty in obedience to Christ, as he himself had said in Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The children of Israel failed because they could not keep the law of Moses. And here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul exhorts his readers not to fall backwards once again to seek justification under the law. Because since no living man can be justified before God, as we read in Psalm 143, it is only possible for the children of Israel to have their justification in Christ. There is no other justification. And Paul begins this chapter by saying, in the freedom in which Christ has set us free, you stand fast indeed and do not again be entangled in a yoke of bondage. Paul is making a direct reference to that which had been expressed by the apostles in regards to the law, as it was described by Luke in the account given in Acts chapter 15, where upon a dispute with certain Judaizers at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas had agreed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles to confer with them as to whether or not the so-called works of the law should be maintained by those of the nations who were turning to Christ. We read in the opening verses of this chapter, and some had come down from Judea, meaning to Antioch, teaching the brethren that if you would not be circumcised in the custom of Moses, you are not able to be saved. Then upon their coming, no little discord and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them, they ordered Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them to go up to Jerusalem to the ambassadors and elders concerning this debate. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, it then says, 
Then there arose some who were persuaded by the sect of the Pharisees, saying that it is necessary to circumcise them and to instruct them to keep the law of Moses. Paul's first recorded ministry in Galatia is briefly described in Acts chapter 16. And now, writing this epistle, it is several years after that, and he is still addressing these same questions which had already been resolved in Jerusalem. We are now towards the end of Acts chapter 18. To continue with what Luke recorded concerning this in Acts chapter 15, then the ambassadors and the elders gathered together to see concerning this account where Peter responded first, and then we read, And there being much debate, Peter arising said to them, Men, brethren, you know that from the first days Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe, referring to the, his vision in Acts chapter 10, which may have happened as many as 10 years before this time and his preaching of the gospel to the household of the Roman centurion Cornelius. And Yahweh, who knows the heart, has accredited them to give the Holy Spirit just as also to us, and distinguishing nothing between both us and them. By faith, he cleanses their hearts. Therefore now, why can't Yahweh to place a yoke Paul says here, do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. To place a yoke upon the necks of the students, or disciples, if you will, which neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear, the Judeans still being under that yoke. So here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul refers to the works of the law as a yoke of bondage. With this, James is recorded as having expressed agreement, where he spoke following Peter, and he said in part, from Acts chapter 15, verse 14, Simeon has just declared how at the first Yahweh considered to take from among the nations a people in his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So here we see that the people whom Yahweh had considered are the same people of the words of the prophets, the people of dispersed Israel, for which Yahweh had declared a new covenant in the writings of the prophets, which is why James's epistle is addressed to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And then James said, On which account I judge not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to Yahweh, but to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled and from blood. For, for Moses, from generations of old, has those who are proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. Now, James cannot change the words of Christ in the Gospel. He can only supplement them with his apostolic understanding. And it cannot be said that he intended to change those words here. 
where Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He certainly meant those same commandments which are found in the law of Moses, which he had often referred to. For instance, when Christ was asked which commandments were to be kept, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, for instance, I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. He had responded by summarizing some of the commandments in the law, and he said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father or mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Therefore, we must understand that in Acts chapter 15, James is only supplementing what is found in the gospel and the writings. Paul had later told the Romans, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patient, patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Elsewhere, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22, Christ was asked which commandment was the greatest. And it is written that Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That second commandment, isn't in the so-called Ten Commandments, first given in the law, in the book of Exodus. I believe it's in Exodus chapter 20. The second commandment, which Christ says is the second commandment, which is like unto the first, is only found in the law of Moses in Leviticus. Therefore, it is the responsibility of men to read the law and the prophets and to deduce these things. Where Christ said that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He's going beyond the regular Ten Commandments that we perceive from Exodus chapter 20 and picking a commandment which is only found in Leviticus and saying that that's the second great commandment. We have to study the Old Testament to deduce these things. That's our responsibility. As Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, and elsewhere in different words. So in Acts chapter 15, where James gives three injunctions, and I'm counting str things strangled and blood as one injunction. It may be four injunctions if you would count them. James gives three injunctions, which are not found in the gospel. He also indicates what other things there are in the law, which are not rituals or ceremonies, and which should be kept in addition to the basic Ten Commandments and the eleventh the injunction to love one's neighbor that Christ really counts as second, that we should all be familiar with. So James says, 
to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from fornication, and from that which is strangled, and from blood. And from these we should discern that in addition to the basic Ten Commandments and other things which are advised in the Gospel, which all almost always have to do with brotherly love, such as the things from the Sermon on the Mount. In addition to this, Christians should also seek to keep those laws, as James informs us here, which maintain the pure and undefiled condition of both our own bodies and the bodies of our offspring. being the food laws and the laws against idolatry and fornication, which is race mixing. Race mixing is one important aspect of fornication. Paul had already discussed circumcision in Galatians chapter 2, relating it to the works of the law. Now, after exhorting his readers not to return to the yoke of bondage represented by the sacrifices, rituals and ceremonies of the law, of which circumcision was a part, which was explicitly mentioned in Acts chapter 15, Paul once again admonishes the Galatians on this matter explicitly. And he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, that if you should be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. And we have the words getting himself circumcised here. It's rather than the usual every man who is circumcised. Paul is saying something a little different than that. The Greek word here is a medium voice participle of peritemno, which means to cut around the perimeter of something, and therefore in this context to be circumcised. The dictionaries, such as the one in Bible Works version 8, which insists that this form of the word here in verse 3, this form of the word peritemno, is of the passive voice are incorrect. Although sometimes, from the context of a passage, the medium form of this word does translate into English as a passive form. That doesn't mean that it belongs to the passive form. With all certainty, the form of the word is a medium or middle voice form. And the medium voice, primarily, indicates that the subject of the verb is both the producer and the recipient of an action. Since this verb is in the medium voice here, in reference to every man, it is correctly interpreted as every man getting himself circumcised, the subject being the initiator and the recipient of the action. It is quite certain that Paul is not considering those infants who are circumcised involuntarily 
which is a common practice in society today because of our Judaized medical profession. There will be a link to a resource here, William McDonald's Greek Enchiridion, when I post this program, and references for pages where the grammar can be checked. Here we are going to quote from James chapter 2. And doing so, we should recognize that what James says concerning the law in that chapter is absolutely agreeable to what Paul says concerning the law here in Galatians chapter 5 and in sections of his epistle to the Romans. It should also be observed that James was writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And Paul is writing to a portion of those same tribes here. In that chapter, after admonishing those who would show a preference for the wealthy over the poor, James said, if, however, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love him near to you as yourself, you do well. But if you respect the stature of persons, you commit an error, being convicted by the law, as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law, but would fail in one thing, has become liable for all. For he, having said, you should not commit adultery, also said, you should not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thusly you speak, and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for him not effecting mercy. Mercy exalts over judgment. The assertions that mercy exalts over judgment is what James further builds upon, wherein chapter 4 of his epistle, the apostle had written about judgment and said, Speak not evil of one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you that you judge another? And in that same manner, Paul had said in Romans chapter 14, but why do you judge thy brother, or why do you set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So we see that Paul and James agree concerning the children of Israel and the law. The law had commanded, and this is what Paul and James are talking about, the law had commanded that Israelites put such sinners to death, but Israel is free from the judgments of the law. Now, there is mercy and forgiveness for repentant sinners that did not exist under the law, as Christ so often illustrated in the Gospels. People can repent and be forgiven. But Paul instructed Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to disassociate with unrepentant sinners, and pray that Yahweh judges them. 
This is because propitiation for sin was according to the works of the law under the old covenant. But now Christ is the propitiation for sin, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 9. The Apostle John also tells us in chapters 2 and 4 of his first epistle. And now we should know, because this question often arises, now we should know why Christians do not execute judgment against other Christians who sin, even when those sins are so repulsive that they would like to do so according to the Levitical law. Yet Christians do have and should exercise the right to defend themselves and their loved ones. That's a different situation. Likewise, and defend their communities by putting unrepentant sinners out of those communities. Likewise, as Paul had talked about freedom from the rituals of the law, James also discussed this law of liberty in the first chapter of his epistle where he wrote, but he peering into the perfect law of freedom and abiding by it, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, he shall be blessed by his deed. Peter also would have assented where he had written in chapter 2 of his first epistle, because thusly is the will of Yahweh, doing good to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men, as free men, yet not having freedom for a cover for evil, but as servants of Yahweh. The freedom Peter spoke of is the liberty, the law of liberty in Christ, which Paul says here has set those who were under the law free from that yoke of bondage. So as Paul says here, and as both James and Peter would agree, if one gets himself circumcised because he seeks to keep the law, then he is therefore obligated to keep the entire law, as James's words explicitly indicate. In this case, Paul says here, that Christ is of no advantage. But failing on one point of the law, one is condemned because by getting circumcised, one sought one's justification in the law, while the Christian should instead seek justification in Christ. As Paul had said in Romans chapter 2, for circumcision Verily prophets, if thou keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your, un, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Instead, by seeking justification in Christ, the Christian understands that he shall be judged by a law of liberty, which is apart from the works of the law. The Christian is freed from those works of the law, those rituals, sacrifices, ceremonial ordinances. Paul goes on to describe the consequences of seeking justification under the law, where he says in verse 4, you are left unemployed apart from the anointed, those 
that in law are tested have fallen from favor. Paul explained in his epistle to the Romans that the election of Yahweh God was by favor, referring to the favor which was promised to the children of Israel in accordance with the promises to Abraham, and that the election was not from the works of the law. In Romans chapter 11, and he says, Now I say, has Yahweh thrust away his people, meaning those Israelites in Judea, not the Edomites, the Israelites in Judea, whom he was praying for at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, is kinsmen according to the flesh. Has Yahweh thrust away his people? Certainly not. Indeed, I also am an Israelite of the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh has not thrust away his people whom he knew beforehand. Do you not know in Elijah what the writings say? How he petitions Yahweh concerning Israel. Yahweh, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone was left remaining, and they seek after my life. So what did the response to him say? I have left to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Now, Elijah's ministry was conducted among the tribes of Israel and not Judah. During the time of Elijah's ministry, Jehoshaphat was king in Judah, who walked in the first ways of David his father and followed after Yahweh's God as it says in the scripture. But the scripture Paul quotes pertains to Israel, since Israel had turned completely to idolatry and propitiation sacrifices for sin, and the other rituals and ceremonies were not being made in Israel according to the law. Therefore, Paul concludes in that chapter of Romans, from Romans 11.5. Now in this manner, even in the present time, there has been a remnant in accordance with the election of favor. But if in favor, no longer from rituals, since favor would be favor no longer. So we have either favor or rituals. You can't have it both ways. You can't justify yourself with rituals and claim to have the favor of Christ. You can't insist that men be baptized to be saved and claim to have the favor of Christ. If you're being baptized to be saved, you're disregarding that favor by practicing a ritual to find your justification. And the same goes for any other ritual and ceremony. So the example that Paul makes in Romans chapter 11 is that even under the Old Covenant, in the time of Elijah, Yahweh judged men apart from the works of the law. If Yahweh had promised to justify Israel apart from the works of the law, how can men think that they can do better for themselves by clinging to the rituals for their justification. You can't do better for yourself. You're kidding yourself. You can't 
improve on the justification granted freely by God. Therefore, Paul asserts in verse 5, For we, in spirit, from faith, anxiously await the expectation of justice. The King James Version and others had through the Spirit. But there is no preposition and no definite article accompanying the dative case noun in any of the manuscripts of Galatians. As a digression, some commentators, and this has come up several times the last few weeks, some commentators imagine that because the word for what we call the spirit is actually translated from Greek and Hebrew words, meaning either breath or wind, that perhaps the spirit of man is intangible because of that association. What they should consider is this, that wind and breath are indeed tangible, but that by themselves they cannot be seen or grasped or followed by men in the flesh. That is certainly why the spirit of man was named after such words, was called in such a manner. But it does not mean that the spirit of man is something intangible. As Christ said in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes and where it goes. But that doesn't mean that it's not tangible, that it doesn't exist. Thus we are all who are born from of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind, but it nevertheless must have a substance of its own, even if we do not quite understand that substance. When a damned man lives after the flesh, he sins, and he is no better than the beasts. But when the Adamic man follows the Spirit of God within him, he seeks to follow the laws of God written in his heart. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the law itself is spiritual, and therefore only those who are willing to live in the Spirit of God could even have the ability to keep it. Speaking of sin, Paul has said in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, do mortify. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then he went on to describe the expectation of the Adamic creation, which awaits the manifestation of the sons of God. This is the expectation of justice, which Paul has written of here, which is also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 45. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh, with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh, the created the heavens, 
God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So we see by this, once again, that true justification is not by the works of the law, but only by the declaration of Yahweh God. Then, in that same place, Yahweh, through the prophet, concludes, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth, in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness, not in the law, and strength. Even to him men shall come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. Yahweh declares that which is right. All the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Isaiah quoted from the word of Yahweh to Elijah in relation to this justification. So did Paul in relation to this same justification quote from the word of Yahweh to Elijah in Romans chapter 11 explaining that justification is not by the rituals and ceremonies, which are the works of the law, but rather justification is by the declaration of Yahweh God. The children of Israel alone had the promise of justification in and by the word of Yahweh their God. And therefore, only those same children of Israel have the expectation of justice of which Paul has spoken here. Then, Paul concludes in relation to that justification that in Christ Joshua, neither circumcision nor un circumcision prevail at all, but faith acting through love. Likewise, Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Christians should do what Yahweh their God expects of them because they do have a faith or a belief in the expectation of justice which he has promised them. And therefore, they should act out of love for him and for one another. For that same reason, they should keep his commandments. However, keeping the rituals and ceremonies of the law do not gain them a better position with God. Rather, as we 
often see illustrated in the gospel. The Christian's love for his brethren gains him treasure in heaven. And Paul asks, have you run well, you who have resisted to be persuaded in the truth? That persuading is not from he who is calling you. And once again, the reference to he who is calling you can only be a reference to records of the prophets and the promises of Yahweh God to call the children of obedience from their captivity. As the word of God says to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 48, hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. As it says there, it also says in Isaiah chapter 62, Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Paul is concluding his argument with the expectation that it is convincing and that it has convicted the hearts of those among the Galatians who had been persuaded by the Judaizers. But in the resistance to truth, Paul tells the Galatians that a little leaven leavens the whole dough. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had made a similar statement in a different context. However, the understanding persists that leaven, being difficult to detect, affects the entire loaf of bread once it is introduced. Therefore, false ideas concerning Christ likewise affect the entire body of Christians once they are accepted. Here Paul is saying this in relation to the contentions of the Judaizers, and it is evident from Acts chapter 15 that the Pharisees in Jerusalem were instigating them. Christ warned the apostles to beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, ostensibly because, among other things, he admonishes them again for paying a tithe of mint and anise and cumin while they had omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. In other words, they kept the works of the law by paying tithes on even the most meaningless things, but they neglected any love for their fellows or true belief in Yahweh their God, seeking instead to justify themselves. Yet Christ himself had cited the word of God in Hosea, where he said to them in Matthew chapter 12, But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. With this it may be evident that it is from the party of the Pharisees that those who would lead Christians captive to the works of the law had proceeded in the first century. It is these of whom Paul had spoken in Galatians chapter 2, where he said that they were false brethren unawares brought in, 
who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ. And with that, Peter also agreed in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying Yahweh that bought them. And then, later in that chapter, speaking of these same intruders, he says, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For, who, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. And that should certainly be cross-referenced to Romans 6.16. Several hundred years later, when the Roman Catholic Church was formed, it is evident that the Pharisees had prevailed in many ways. Galatians chapter 5, verse 10. I have confidence for you among the number of the prince, or literally you in the prince, that you will have no other purpose, and he who is agitating you shall bear the judgment, whoever he may be the Judaizers amongst the Galatians. Therefore, the Apostle James says in his epistle, You must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment. Those who teach false doctrines under a presumption of authority are judged to a greater degree than those who merely follow. The word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 50, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. In that same manner, it speaks concerning the shepherds in Jeremiah chapter 25. How ye shepherds, and cry, and wallow yourselves in the ashes, ye principal of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished, and you shall fall like a pleasant vessel. And the shepherd shall have no way to flee, nor the principal of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a howling of the principal of the flock shall be heard, for Yahweh has spoiled their pasture because they were teaching false doctrines. The teachers bear the greatest responsibility, and the peaceful habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. Verse 11. Now, for my part, brethren, if I yet proclaim circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then has the stumbling block of the cross been rendered idle. <laughs> the Greek word scandalon is literally a trap, but here it is a stumbling block, a phrase familiar from the King James Version, which basically has the same meaning. A stumbling block is a trap that somebody may fall over on the way. The last clause here is not marked as a question in any of the other translations. There's a grammatical argument 
that I present here that's kind of detailed, and I'll leave it for the notes to this program. But this last clause must be a question because of the grammar, and we have proven that from Liddell and Scott's definition of the word ara. Ara may be a inferential particle and inference then, which we see in the if-then statements that we discussed over the past couple of weeks. Or it can be an interrogatory particle. Here it must be an interrogatory particle because of the grammar of the sentence. It's not that important, but the King James and other versions make similar mistakes in other places. Indeed, Paul had still continued to teach the necessity of circumcision for those who were Judeans as late as Acts chapter 16, which was even after he had the meeting in Jerusalem with the other apostles regarding the law in relation to the people of the nations. In Acts chapter 16, it is recorded that Paul had circumcised Timothy according to the law on account of the Judeans because Timothy's mother was a Judean. So up to that point, he was still teaching circumcision for Judeans. This was just prior to his first recorded ministry among the Galatians, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 16 at verse 6. Yet, regardless of what Paul was teaching at the time concerning the law, and if he was teaching and if he was teaching circumcision up to that point for Judeans, he was still persecuted by the Judeans, which is the point he is making here, that even if he still proclaimed circumcision, why is he still persecuted? Paul refers to the word of Yahweh from Isaiah chapter 8, which is speaking of the time when the Assyrians would invade Israel and Judah. And it says from verse 13, Sanctify Yahweh of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, and for a jinn, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon Yahweh that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts, who dwells in Mount Zion. Likewise, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Christ is the head cornerstone prophesied of in the Psalms, Psalm 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed, meaning they were predestined to be disobedient. 
as the word of God says in Isaiah. In the context in which Paul cites the passage here, Christ is the stumbling block to men who would deny the word of God while seeking to justify themselves through works, while those in Israel who put their trust in Christ and his mercy for their justification shall not fall. And Paul says in verse 12, I would even be obliged that those upsetting you were to cut themselves off. The Greek word ophelon here is I would be obliged. The word also appears in several other places in Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and in Revelation 3.15. In the King James Version, it is always would or I would. Liddell and Scott derived this word, ophelon, from the second form that they list for definitions of the verb ophelo, which they have as to increase, to enlarge, or to strengthen. I disagree with that association. Yes, I'm disagreeing with Liddell and Scott. I would rather understand that Ophelon is described from the first form which they list for the verb Ophelo, which is a variation of Ophilo, Strong's number 3784, which is to owe, to be a debtor, and which fits quite well the English idiom whereby it is rendered here. I would be obliged, and fits quite well with the context everywhere that the word appears. So that's the reason for that minor difference between the Christogenian New Testament and every other version. Verse 13, for you have been called on to freedom, brethren, only not that freedom for occasion in the flesh, but through love you serve one another. It goes without saying that Paul in verse 12 would be happy if the Judaizers cut themselves off rather than cut off other people's foreskin. And here in verse 13, once again, Paul's teachings are entirely consistent with his having brought the gospel to the dispersions of Israel, which were found in part among the Galatians of this epistle. The concept of liberty granted to one who keeps the commandments of God in connection with the mercy and salvation of God is found in the Psalms. In Psalm 119, from verse 41, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Yahweh, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me, for I trust in thy word, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Paul is echoing that part of Psalm 
119. In many of the statements of this epistle, in this chapter, likewise, the preaching of the gospel was to proclaim liberty to the captives, meaning that liberty would be proclaimed to the children of Israel who were put off from Yahweh their God when they had broken the old covenant, and as a result of that, the old kingdoms were destroyed. Ever since they were put off, they were under penalty of death for their transgressions. Yet Yahweh God himself chose to come as a man and to die so that they would be freed from the law which they had violated, which Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. The husband dying sets the wife free from the law. As it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, Christ quoted this same passage from Isaiah, chapter 61, in reference to himself. The spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. Paul admonishes that Christians should serve one another. And it is seen in the gospel of Christ that true Christian love is evident in one's Christian communion, which is how Christians should serve one another. That liberty we have from the law, that freedom we're called to, as he says here in verse 13, is not for occasion in the flesh. As Peter had said, do not use your liberty as a cloak for doing wicked things. But through love, you serve one another. As Christ gave his life for his brethren, Christians are to follow him and do the same. That does not necessarily mean, as we've often said here before, dying for one's brethren although at times that may be necessary, but rather it means dedicating one's life for one's brethren. And that principle is the foundation for true Christian communion. As we see in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, from verse 17, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and my mother and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed for my youth. Then Yahshua, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. 
Go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And, referring to the man, he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. In Luke chapter 9, in a record of a different conversation, Christ had also said, and he said to them, to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Sacrificing our own lives for the good of our brethren, we lose our lives for the sake of Christ. Spending them in service to him. So Christ said in another place, in Matthew chapter 20, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many, serving him as he demands of us, which is to serve our brethren, doing that, We seek treasure in heaven. And for that, Paul further stated here in verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one statement, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Joshua Christ had made the same profession in several places in the gospel. In Mark chapter 12, after Christ was asked, which is the first commandment of all? Of all, we read, And Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And thou shalt love. I'm sorry, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this. In in other words, the second is similar, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The Greek word translated as neighbor in the King James Version is usually from the adverb with the definite article, tone placion, which literally means one who is near and nothing else, 
one who is nearby, one who is near. By itself, it really does not distinguish between nearness in relationship or nearness in geographical proximity. However, other Greek words which are found in the New Testament and translated as neighbors do indicate mere geographical proximity, such as gaitone and perioikos, one of the same land, or one who simply dwells around you, perioikos, one who dwells within your proximity. Here Paul is quoting primarily from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and so did Christ, because this is the only time that this commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself appears in the books of Moses. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. And therefore, one's neighbor has to be one of the children of thy people, as it says in Leviticus. And the Hebrew word for neighbor in that passage infers a nearness, not of geographical proximity, but of relationship. The Hebrew word in the original text is reah. Strong's Hebrew number, 7453. It's said to be, to, to be derived from Strong's number 7462, Rhea. They're spelled differently, but they're pronounced basically the same. And which is an associate, more or less close. And then Strong lists the King James Version translations of that word as brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, or neighbor. So it should certainly be evident that the word which is used, the Greek word which is used to translate it, tone placeion, is not simply someone who lives nearby. The root word, Hebrew word, Strong's number 7462, is defined by Strong as a primitive root to tend a flock, to pasture it. So it seems that one's placeion can only be a fellow flock member, one of the children of thy people. So it is evident that according to the language employed in the law, if one is of your flock, then he is a neighbor. We had discussed this Greek word at greater length in our presentations for Luke chapter 10 and more recently for Acts chapter 7. And Paul says in verse 15, But if you bite and eat one another up, watch, lest by one another you are consumed. Loving one's brother, means seeking to help lift him up rather than oppressing him. The ancient children of Israel were rebuked by Yahweh in Micah chapter 3 because those with advantage had oppressed the disadvantaged. And it says, And I said, 
Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin off from them, and they break their bones, and chop them in pieces, as for the pot, and as flesh within the cauldron. Now, the heads of the house of Jacob were not literally slaying and eating the people, but rather they were oppressing them and devouring them economically. Christian Israelites should seek to help their brethren and their Christian communities in every way they can, including economically. They should not be in competition with their brethren, because seeking to gain the advantage over them, they devour them. Doing so, they themselves are consumed while they only appear to be wealthy. There are other emotional and social as well as financial ways in which Christians may bite and eat one another up. And doing these things, we also set ourselves against the interests of our brethren and contrary to the health of our communities. Paul had said in Romans chapter 15, we then, that are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. And Paul says here in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, Now I say, you must walk in the Spirit, and the desire of the flesh you should not at all fulfill. When men seek their own enrichment, or seek to fulfill their lusts for their own pleasure, they do so at the expense of their brethren and at the expense of their communities. All men have fleshly desires. Yet for those who seek to please God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. It is a pursuit of the fulfillment of those fleshly desires which leads to sin and death. As the Apostle James said in the first chapter of his epistle, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when the lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. And you kill not only yourself, but you kill, you bite and eat up and consume your brethren as well. The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Indeed, these are in opposition to one another, in which case you should not do these things that you desire. As we discussed at length when presenting Romans chapter 8 here early last year, the Adamic man is peculiar above all other creatures because he has two natures, the fleshly and the spiritual. From this, Yahweh had promised the children of Israel that he would write his law in their hearts. 
Yet, as Christ had said in the gospel, no man can serve two masters. And that is the challenge of the Adamic man, to overcome the nature of the flesh, choosing instead to live in the spirit. Therefore, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry, I'm trying to type as I speak. Indeed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Yahshua has liberated you from the law of guilt and death. The law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh. Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness of errant flesh or sinful flesh and amid sin condemned sin in the flesh that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us who walk not in accordance with the flesh but in accordance with the Spirit. So with this, we may also see, in part, just how the law was a schoolmaster for Israel to bring them to Christ. Paul continues in that chapter of Romans, For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh, then to the law of Yahweh it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy Yahweh. So here we may see why, as it says in the Psalms, no living man can be justified before God, and why rituals and ceremonies cannot make a man righteous. Once again, Paul continues in that chapter, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you. And if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, indeed the body is dead because of fault, but the spirit alive because of righteousness. Once an Israelite realizes the consequences of the pursuit of the flesh and the implications of the gospel of Christ, he should abandon the pursuit of the flesh in expectation of the kingdom of heaven. But as for those who have not the spirit of Christ, those who are not children of Israel, meaning those who are not of Adam, more precisely. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the account of the cross is folly for those who are going to die. It is only by keeping the commandments of God that a Christian has communion with God in Christ. As Christ himself had said in John chapter 14, if one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my Father shall love him, and we shall come to him, and we shall make an abode with him. The only way to have communion with God and with Christ is to keep the commandments. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are under no law. Galatians 5.18. And of course, the Judeo-Christians like to lift those 
10 or 11 words out of the entire epistle and use them as a doctrine by themselves. This is also an often misunderstood passage. Paul is not an antinomian. Rather, he is saying that if one follows after the desires of the flesh, doing all of those things which are contrary to the law, then one is not in the spirit. The law is spiritual, as he says in Romans, and one in the spirit, one is in the spirit when he chooses to keep the commandments. Otherwise, one cannot be in the spirit, and one cannot have communion with God. Paul spoke in the same manner in his first epistle to Timothy, which was written as he departed from Ephesus several years after he had written this epistle to the Galatians. There, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he wrote, Yet we know that the law is good, if one would use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not laid down for the righteous. So if you're righteous, if you are led by the Spirit, you are under no law. And then Paul continues there. But for lawless and unruly, impious and wrongful, unholy and profane, patricidal and matricidal, murderous, fornicating, homosexual, kidnapping, lying, falsely swearing men, along with anything else which is contrary to sound instruction. Those are the people for whom the law exists. According to the good message of the honor of the blessed Yahweh, which I have been entrusted with. So if one is led by the Spirit, one is not under the law, because the law is for sinners and not for the righteous. Paul continues in that same manner as he expressed these things to Timothy here in Galatians. Manifest are the deeds of the flesh. Such things are, and some manuscripts interpolate adultery right here, the majority text being one of them. Such things are fortification, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, use of drugs, hostilities, contention, rivalry, wrath, intrigues, dissensions, sects, envyings, and here some manuscripts interpolate murders, the majority text being one of them, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, which I have announced to you beforehand, just as I have said before, that they who practice such things shall not inherit Yahweh's kingdom. And that Greek word, pharmakia, or pharmakia, I'm sorry, is the use of drugs here. The same word is the source of our English word, pharmacy, and its relations. Strong defines the word as medication. Liddell and Scott, the use of drugs or potions or spells. The word appears elsewhere in the New Testament, only in the Revelation, in various forms, in chapters 9, chapters 9, 18, 21, and 22. While the list of evils which Paul lists here is somewhat different than what he had listed in 1 Timothy, where he discusses 
very much the same thing. In either case, he is only giving examples of behavior, which is contrary to the law of God. And some people I know are going to ask me about that word pharmakia, but we're only supposed to eat the things which God ordained. And technically, pharmakia is the consumption of unclean foods. I would not condemn somebody who takes drugs. Most people that are identity Christians have become caught up in the medical system before coming to the truth. That's one of the, I see that as one of the unfortunate consequences of being captive in Babylon. There are, I am sure, natural alternatives to any of the drugs we take. However, on the other hand, we don't know or can't obtain all of those natural alternatives. There is much um, ancient wisdom which is lost. The Greeks had, um, in some of the philosophers, in some of the medical books, the Greeks, actually some of them wrote medical books, described some of their drugs. And along similar lines today, they do include the consumption of many things that we would not normally consume. Things which are both um, contrary to sound health, such as the mercury and, and, and other foul substances that they put in some of the modern injections. The Greeks did the same thing. They consumed elements from the earth and, and um, various substances that people normally would not eat or that are contrary to the laws of cleanliness and, and, and the laws defining what food is in the scripture. In either case, both here in Galatians or in 1 Timothy, Paul is only giving examples of behavior which is contrary to the law of God and which is therefore also contrary to Christian deportment. Paul is obviously not an antinomian, but one is not excluded from the kingdom of heaven if one has ever done any of these things. The children of Israel had mercy and an intercessor for their sin, as the Apostle John explains in chapter 2, especially of his first epistle. The law results in death, but it is the spirit which produces life. And Paul is only saying that none of these things will be practiced in the kingdom of Yahweh. They may be done here, but they won't be done in the kingdom of God. So Christians should put them away now. By abstaining from these things, Christians demonstrate their love for God and their love for their brethren, their willingness to keep his law. And of course, I won't tell you, understanding the weaknesses of men, to cast your drugs away. And I won't be self-righteous because I currently don't take anything. 
Paul tells us to, and we'll see this next week, right, in Galatians chapter 6, to correct our brethren with humility so that we ourselves do not fall into the same trap. So we pray to God and pray that he can show us a better way and we do what we have to do so long as we are captive in Babylon. That would be my advice. Speaking on this same topic, once again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which was also written later than this epistle, and while Paul was still in Ephesus, Paul had said, or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals. And I really wanted to use the term sodomites there when I translated the Christian New Testament, but found it more politically and socially expedient in today's day and age to use the word homosexuals. The Greek word arsenokoites, regardless of what the sodomites themselves claim, arsenokoites describes what we would call a homosexual today. It describes nothing else but a fag. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. We would hope that a Christian cleanses himself of these sins. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. Every Israelite is given space for repentance. But as Paul also said in his first epistle to Timothy in chapter 5, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Christians who repent of their sins in this life are not accompanied by their sins when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall continue with these things in our next and apparently our final presentation of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Here next Friday, Yahweh God be willing. Tomorrow night, the Protocols of Satan, Part 3. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks and I shall continue our series on the traitors of England with a discussion of William of Orange and the founding and the consequences of the Bank of England. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.